You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Charlton, here with co-host Amba Gagarian. In our uh, final segment uh, this evening, uh, we look at uh, what's uh, going on in uh, Ukraine and the conflict there and, and also looking back at some uh, important recent history in this country. Uh, with the growing tensions between the U.S. and Russian governments, concerns that direct military clashes between the world's two superpowers could rapidly escalate into a, a nuclear exchange that ends life on Earth as we know it. Uh, this kind of uh, uh, hair-raising hair raising headlines have been emanating from Ukraine. And 40 years ago this spring, concerns about a nuclear war were also spiking as U.S. President Ronald Reagan sought to build a new generation of nuclear weapons, engaged in strident verbal attacks on the Soviet Union, and made public comments that downplayed the seriousness of nuclear war. Millions of people marched against Reagan in the arms race in NATO countries in Western Europe that were on the front line of a possible World War III in that era. And on June 12, 1982, upwards of one million people marched past the United Nations and then gathered in Central Park to demand an end to the arms race. It remains one of the largest single protest events in U.S. history. Here is footage from that day, courtesy of the American Friends Service Committee. And now the time has come, and they have come to speak of many things. From Bologna, Italy, and Beatrice, Nebraska, Edogawa, Japan, and East Harlem in New York City. A great ingathering of people. Some to demonstrate. Some to make a beginning. Some to challenge. Some non-violently to bear witness but sharing a single idea. All governments must stop the madness of nuclear armament. The building of weapons so fast, so accurate, and so devastating that they invite a nuclear first strike. Joining us now is longtime peace and justice organizer, Leslie Kagan. Leslie was the coordinator for the June 12, 1982 rally for disarmament. She's going to take us through some of the history of that event and the impact it made at the time. She's also going to help us think about where we are today and what can be done to revive the peace movement. Leslie, welcome back to WBAI Radio. Hi. hi. Good to be here. Thanks. Yes. Uh, for starters, can you take us back to June 12, 1982 and paint a picture of what it was like to be there that day? Yeah, uh, I'm hoping that, you know, a lot of people uh, listening in were there, if you were alive at that point, it was 40 years ago. Um, but it was an, a remarkable day. It was a, a gorgeous spring day, June, you know, mid-June in New York City can be beautiful, and it was. Um, and it was a peaceful day, and it was a absolutely massive outpouring of all kinds of people from all walks of life, uh, multi-generational, multi-racial, from many, many cities and locations all around the country and from around the world, Um, and all in a common 
effort to put pressure on the uh, world's leaders who uh, were gathering at the UN for a special session that had been convened, the second one that had ever been convened on nuclear disarmament. Uh, so it was that uh, see wave after wave of people um, of humanity uh, crying out, demanding that um, that nuclear weapons had to be uh, had to be abolished, had to be completely uh, taken away, um, not by exploding them, but by dismantling them. Um, and um, and it was a, an extremely powerful day. The power in that day, though, came from the fact that literally hundreds and hundreds of groups all around the country, particularly east of the Mississippi, um, certainly here in New York City and in the greater New York area, but groups everywhere threw time and energy and effort into the task of mobilizing people and turning out people, which required a basic uh, commitment to educating people. People don't just turn out <laughs> for a demonstration like that or any other demonstration. They turn out because they understand something about the issue. That means that somebody has been doing the educational work and the organizing work. So the day, as important and exciting and moving and historic as it was, it was only one part of a process that began way before June 12th, and in fact lasted way beyond June 12th. Um, but the day itself was fabulous, I must say. Tell us more about that process. And uh, <clears throat> I mean, sure. Uh, yeah, not, not, and how'd you do it without email? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, there's not enough time to go into every detail now, but the quick picture here is that without email, without the internet, <laughs> We had one computer in the National Coalition office that was only used for dealing with financial matters. Everything else was by phone and fax, remember fax machines, um, and writing letters to people and mailing out material, remember postage stamps. Um, we used all of that. We used whatever technology we had available at the time. Um, it was a national coalition that kind of gave leadership to the whole effort. Uh, there was a tremendous organizing committee in New York City. Uh, and as I said, there were committees formed or some organizations that had already been up and running uh, and working on the issue took up um, the mobilizing, you know, and the organizing work in their locale. And it was really at the grassroots level where um, where the nitty gritty happened. We helped at the national level, helped nurture that. Uh, we by keeping people informed. Every time we had a wrinkle with the city, the parks department and the police department about permits, we let people know. Every time we want something uh, from that struggle, we let people know. Um, as we had more information to share, we did that. We uh, helped them organize local press events and work with their local media. But the, the backbone of actually not only the June 12th demonstration, but any mass mobilization that I've ever been connected to, and I've been connected to a lot of them, uh, is the backbone is always what people are doing in their communities, at their workplaces, 
at their schools, in their religious institutions, at home. Um, that's the backbone of any movement. Right. And, and when the Cold War intensified in the 1950s, America's school kids were taught to duck under their desks to avoid the worst effects of an atomic bomb exploding near them. In a moment, we're going to listen to a clip from an educational film called Duck and Cover. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you have that clip. I don't know. If I we're can gonna... tell you about it. I was one of those kids, right, who had to duck and cover. It was frightening. Not only that, at least in New York City, where I grew up, I don't know what happened in other parts of the world, of the country. We had to wear dog tags with our name uh, and the the name of our parents, and we were told by teachers that we had to wear them. And you know, we we're six, seven, eight years old at the time. That we had to wear them in case. In case the Russians, they didn't even call them the Soviet Union, in case the Russians dropped a nuclear bomb, an atomic bomb on us, and our body was burnt beyond recognition so that the teachers, who somehow miraculously survived this, um, would be able to tell our parents that we had died. Um, it, the whole thing was totally unreal and completely frightening. Um, and I am part of that generation that grew up with that very real and very reality-based fear of nuclear weapons. So in 1982, how did you all handle the challenge of making people more aware of the threat of nuclear war without scaring them so much that they became paralyzed and unable to act? Right. That that was challenge. Uh, you know, there wasn't a magic formula. It had to, I think, our ability to handle that had to do with the fact that we were dealing with people in person, one-on-one. -on -one. Those local organizing committees would gather people together and talk about the issues and explore the issues and explore people's fears. I think there's a parallel right now, um, not only in terms of the, the ongoing danger of nuclear war and nuclear weapons, but in the climate crisis, right? How do you also, how do you talk about the climate crisis and the potential for the disaster that an, an ongoing climate and escalating climate crisis will bring to people all around the world. Um, how do you do that in a way that doesn't demobilize people? That doesn't say fuck it, you know, oh, excuse me. <laughs> that doesn't say, you know, people throw their hands up and say, well, what's the point? We have to find that middle ground and we have to re keep reminding people that it's only when people get involved. It's only when massive numbers of people stand together and march together and raise their voices and use all their power to demand change. That's that's how we deal with it. That's how we deal with the crisis. That's how we deal with any bad issue. We have to organize, organize, organize. And in the course of that organizing, there are moments when we mobilize. And that's what June 12th, June, June 12th, 1982, was a mobilization movement that happened because of the organizing that was going on. And that's how you deal with people. You have to deal with people where they are and not pretend that their heads or their hearts are in someplace else. You got to deal with them where they are and help them move through a process where they want to be not just marching, but organizing other people as well. And how did the, the major media respond? How did how did politicians respond? What would you say was the impact of the June 12th mobilization inside the halls of power and on the larger peace movement? 
Yeah, there's a great story in the middle of the afternoon. Um, I don't remember now if it was the Secretary of Defense or the Secretary of State, but some one of those two guys, and they were both guys, um, issued press release saying demonstrations in New York City don't uh, affect policy. Well, if we don't affect policy, then why are you issuing a press release? I mean, it was they, uh, the fact that they did that indicated that they knew that we were out there. They heard the voices of people. Um, no one demonstration, no one movement even changes such big policy overnight. It happens because it's part of a cu- cumulative and building effect. Um, there is enough evidence, though, to believe that in the that that we had an impact and strengthened the nuclear disarmament movement here and globally, and that that. Helped help feed uh, over the next coming years several real, um, uh, you know, important steps to curtail, to limit, um, to control nuclear weapons and the beginning of some reduction. Let me just make it clear, though, with almost 14,000 nuclear warheads still on this planet, we are far from done with this struggle. It only takes about 100 of them to basically destroy life as we know it on this planet. This struggle is very real and advanced in Ukraine have, uh, I think, uh, been a wake-up call, another wake-up call to people that by accident or on purpose, by design or by accident, this thing could get as bad, as horrible, as horrific as what it, what's going on now in Ukraine really is. It could spiral way out of control uh, into a nuclear confrontation um, very, very quickly with unbelievably uh, horrendous outcomes to it. So I just want to use this last moment or two I have here to urge people to remember that there was a time when humanity didn't have nuclear weapons. It's all, it's 77 years since the first atomic bombs were developed and went off, dropped, of course, by the United States on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, 77 years is a long time, but it's not a long time in the course of human history. Um, we didn't have nuclear weapons for the vast majority of human history. We don't have to have them now. We have to do whatever we can to stop nuclear weapons and I would just add to stop war. War should not be the vehicle for settling disputes. Uh, the human race hopefully has progressed to the point where there are other ways to, to settle, uh, settle disputes. Right. And before, uh, before we go here, um, just two quick questions that you can, I'm, I'm sure, uh, hit pretty uh, fast. One, uh, um, uh, this being Women's History Month, uh, your thoughts on uh, whether if we had far more women leaders than we have today, uh, how much of a difference that would make or, right. or not? And, and then also, uh, what gives you hope uh, as someone who's uh, persevered uh, through the decades? Right. Um, I would hope, you know, I would love it. I would love to be able to say having more women in key leadership positions at every level of policymaking would make the difference. Uh, I'm sorry to say, I don't think that's true. Um, look at Margaret Thatcher. Look at Golda Meir. I mean, there's plenty of women throughout history. It's not, it's not about 
gender. It's not only about gender. It's about politics and, and broader politics and bigger politics, although I think gender politics are essential and critical. Uh, and I do hope more women, more women with good politics end up in these positions, which gives me hope. There are so many young women, especially you, young women care? of color, that have stepped up. Sandy Nurse is right there at the top of the list, uh, at the local level, at the state level, at the national level, who are bold and creative and not afraid of the power they're confronting and that's what we need uh, and I hope that women would also bring of course agenda analysis and perspective perspective to all the work they're doing not just quote women's issues okay well we'll have to uh, leave it there uh, uh, Leslie Kagan longtime peace activist thank you so much for joining us on WBAI this evening sure Thank you. Okay. And that's uh, the end of uh, this week's show. We'll be back in two weeks. Uh, we'll be preempted next week. And uh, thank you to Reggie Johnson, our uh, board operator. Uh, Amba, what's our uh, uh, going away song this evening? This is In Our Hands by James Taylor, actually performing live at the 1992 Rally for Nuclear Disarmament. So enjoy. Might be a little foggy if we're recording. Yeah.